Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to the Mass and All Access podcast, brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Paul Mancano, Bobby Blanco here with you as always. Our hair is a little bit longer. We are a little bit more, uh, my, my facial hair is not longer because, you know, I can't do it. But uh, Bobby, the beard looks thicker than it did a week ago. Yeah. And uh, we're just... Getting sadder and sadder every day without baseball, but we're trying to to plug along here. Yeah, I um, actually just had a conversation with uh, Mark Zuckerman, MassInSports.com, the other day, and I told him my disappointment that he shaved his facial hair because I'm growing mine out. Yeah. I was going to do a quarantine beard, but you know what? I figured I might have to trim up starting tomorrow. I, I saved it. for. I was going to do it before today's podcast, but I saved it, and I might do it tomorrow. I might do a quick cleanup. Just to keep it a little more perfect, even though we're doing these podcasts from our respective homes and it's quarantine and it's being comfortable. I mean, I have a baby shark and a hat and a sweat and a towel above me, but doesn't mean I can't keep it clean up on the face. So I might have to trim up. I have no idea what's going to happen with the hair, though. I don't know how we talked about this, I think, last week. I And and with Patrick Corbin did having his wife cut his hair. I don't know how I'm going to approach that. No clue. I don't know if I have the right tools for that. Um, if I trust anyone who's living with me right now to do it. So that's going to be a yeah. topic of conversation in the coming weeks of how to cut my hair if I choose to do so. I really don't trust anybody. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm with my girlfriend right now, but even if I were home, I don't know if I'd trust anybody in my immediate family to do my hair. Maybe my sister, but I mean, she used to put my hair in like little pigtails when I was five because uh, she thought it was fun when she was eight. So I don't know if I yeah. trust her going anywhere near that thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sad Mark Zuckerman shaved his facial hair because that was the majority of our content on Mass and All Access. I mean, that was the only thing I had to talk with to him about at this point. Now, I have to talk about baseball or something? Uh, that just yeah. doesn't seem right. Uh, well, no, you have to revert to him spoiling the West Wing for you. This is true. This is true for those who have watched on Mass and All Access where uh, he did spoil West Wing for me. Now uh, it's become a nightly thing because I'm just pl- plowing through this show. And I yeah. am just up to, you know, because what else are you doing at this point? So I'm just texting him all the wild stuff that's happening in season two. Have you seen the show, Bobby? I'm not. I was oh, not a West Wing guy growing up, excellent. but I've obviously heard of great things. Yeah. Yeah. The political dramas, I'm, I don't get too much into. I, I like um, I like medical dramas in terms of the drama show. Okay. I like cop dramas. And I'm a more way more of a comedy guy, as you yeah. know. Uh, I'm currently binge watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, with my girlfriend, she's yeah. watching it for the first time straight through, nice. which I'm having a great time. We did community already. We dabble into we're big Parks and Rec and The Office fans, so we dabble into those every once in a while. But in terms of drama, I'm more of like a medical drama, cop drama, political drama is probably on my back burner. But I mean, I would definitely give The West Wing a go because obviously it's one of the best shows of all time and has heard her has had a lot of great reviews and stuff. Um, but yeah, that's not on my immediate cue i'm thinking the next big thing after binging shows is probably binging like movies and their sequels um i've seen all the marvel movies so i can't do that that would be awesome if i had never seen them um but i'm thinking like i can't maybe die hard i've never seen any of the die hard movies 
Uh, yeah. You know, I, I have never seen any of the Fast and Furious. I don't think I want to watch those, but something where it's like there are 10 movies and I just have to go through and just watch them all. Are you thinking of something that you've never seen before or yeah. that you're already a fan of? Something that I've never seen before because I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I could do uh, Marvel, but I've, I've seen those movies pretty right. recently. So we did um, – my girlfriend hadn't seen all the Marvel movies, so we we watched some of the lesser known or lesser talked about Marvel movies. Like she's seen the Infinity Wars, the End Games, right. the Civil War, stuff like that. Um, but we did like uh, Iron Man, the original Iron Man. We nice. did Winter, Winter Soldier. Um, so uh, those are fun. Um she never seen the Indiana Joneses, so we watched those, oh, great. excluding the Shia LaBeouf one. Those were a lot of fun. Excluding? All of those movies. Excluding. Okay, good. I want to watch it just because I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters. I think it would be for a good laugh. Yeah. But she won't watch it with me, so i got to find time to watch it myself. Um, you were talking about maybe doing Star Wars or the Godfather trilogy. Soon. Ooh. I mean, I have seen one and two of the Godfather, but I've stayed away from three because I've heard awful things but yeah my dad cautions me against three but he said you should still see it just to complete the trilogy but one and two are 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 the best ones yeah i mean and it eats up so much time they're long movies um but you can't break it up into parts either you got to watch the thing straight through yeah all right we also we have been trying to tackle movies that we haven't seen yet so good call try and knock those out too go down the list um okay let's get into uh, a rewatch of the nationals postseason wins uh, last week, we did NLDS Game 5. So this week, we are doing NLCS Game 1 in St. Louis. Bobby, the biggest story by far coming into this game was Daniel was Hudson. How tired. Oh. What were you going to say? <laughs> how tired we were. <laughs> uh, yeah, how exhausted. Uh, we had just gotten oh, Daniel in the Hudson, day before. Right, 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 yeah, right. Yeah, just gotten in the day before. Uh, the fact that, look, Game 2 is that I'm sick the entire game, and I slept through it because I was right. like, deathly ill uh and that was terrible but game one was uh of course daniel hudson being uh you know away for the birth of i believe it was his third child yep um and obviously that news had broken that day i remember it uh and i remember you know davy martinez discussing it um and it was just one of those things where it for whatever reason it was polarizing, and some people didn't like it, and then it ended up not mattering in the slightest in this game. Not at all. I, and it was polarizing, of course, for the wrong reason. People love to be mad. Stop being mad. He had a child for God's sake. People, I, I will never get over the people who said, it's his third one. Like, what does he need to be there for? Yeah, like, yeah. Are, are you kidding me? I don't have children. I'm not even married, and I know that I would drop everything. It could be my 15th child. I would still go. Like, what, what, what kind yeah. of talk is that? You have to love uh, your kids equally, right? Isn't that a thing of I, parenthood? Yeah. And I think I even recall, slightly recalling that Daniel Hudson did kind of teeter with the idea of staying with the team. But Dave Martinez was like, no, go. Go yeah. be with your family. Um, so hats off to Davey Martinez and the Nationals for allowing him to do that in a, before a big game. Um, but, yeah, it did not matter in the slightest. Uh, Nationals needed just two pitchers throughout the course of this game, of course. Anibal Sanchez taking it hit her into the eighth, uh, seven and two thirds, and Doolittle getting the four out save. Um, I mean, that's just that's the story was actually I I remember the story not really being that for me at least not being that Daniel Hudson couldn't be there. It was like all right, when's when's he going to be back? Because I I remember everyone pretty much saying okay, he's going to probably you're allowed to miss a maximum of 
or between three and five days per MLB rule. So it's like, all right, is he going to miss both these games in St. Louis and then meet the team back in Washington or or what? Yeah. Uh, and he was back the very next day, which is impressive in and of itself. So hats off to him for returning the next day. Um, but yeah, uh, the Nats were not able or didn't miss a beat. Anibal carried this team throughout the game. What a performance. I, we'll get to it eventually, but it was like halfway through his outing and someone on the broadcast, it might have been Jeff Francoeur or Ron Darling saying like, you know, this is the time where the Nationals would have been extremely happy with Anibal getting this far to the game. I think it was like the sixth inning. And, and you know, and they have to have him be pitching a no hitter at this point. I mean, the Nats would take that and run with it every single day. Daniel Hudson or not. Yeah. But at the time, I do remember thinking, obviously, awesome news that he was going to go and and be there for his kid. I thought that was obviously absolutely the right decision. But look, the the Nationals had just been through a grinded out series with the Dodgers. They were pretty exhausted. We were pretty exhausted coming from the West Coast. Um, And obviously, the bullpen was not a strength coming into the postseason. So, you know, the question was, how far is Sanchez going to be able to go? And um, is he going to be able to, you know, and, and are they going to be able to make up the rest with a rainy, with a, um, a doolittle, obviously, and it wouldn't end up mattering. All right, first inning. Uh, one, two, three, bottom of the first, and you start to think, okay. Also, the fact that uh, Anibal Sanchez had never, th- almost never thrown to Jan Gomes during the regular season, which was also kind of a storyline because Kurt Suzuki was still out from game five against the Dodgers. Um, but I just remember also coming into this game, just how cold it was, um, our weird press box placement, the fact that we were in a, in a box suite, uh, in the right field corner ish or on the, in the foul side. Um, it was just, it was very strange. And I remember that it was a sea of red, uh, Cardinals fans were obviously hyped and just how quickly the, the, they the air kind of went out of that place because they didn't have anything to get hyped about. There was nothing like the, the loudest the crowd was, it felt like was before the game was before the first pitch was thrown. Um, And, and they just literally did not have anything to cheer about the rest of the game. So it, it was just kind of, those are my memories from the first inning of that game. Uh, real quick, before I get to my memories, I, wa- I do want to, ha- we have some breaking news on the Mass Access podcast right now. And it's very fitting. Anibal Sanchez just tweeted for the first time in three years. <laughs> <laughs> and he just changed his Twitter profile picture to him and his wife holding the World Series trophy. Hashtag new profile pic at Anibal Sanchez 19 on Twitter. He just re-upped his Twitter game. It looks like for the first time since 2017, his last tweet was a retweet from February Valentine's Day 2017 of him and Justin Verlander when he was on the Dodgers or the Tigers, excuse me. Um, so that's breaking news right here that Anibal is fittingly, as we we're discussing his no hit bid in the in the NLCS, uh, updating his Twitter uh, account. But yeah, uh, back to my initial memories. I agree, it was freezing. We were in a weird, like, you know, we were used to at this point, I guess, not being directly in the press box. I remember we got kind of got lost going to our designated press box area because it was down the right field line or, yeah, the right field line, the first base line by the foul pole uh, in a sweep, which ended up being okay for us because it was so cold. We had an indoors to sit in and watch the game and keep warm. Uh, so that was kind of a good and bad thing. But, yeah, the crowd at Bush Stadium was Amazing. Everyone knows how St. Louis is it's a great baseball town. They have great fans there. They're very into the They'll Cardinals. They'll be the first to tell pre- you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another thing, too, that we just, everyone talked about how great they were. We get it. But but it's it's true. I mean, they, they were great. It was super loud. Sea of Red 
rave, waving the rally towels. Um, it was a great atmosphere for a playoff game. And I remember in the, I guess live, I didn't re- recognize it because I guess I was like stressed and focused on the game. But rewatching it the other night, um, maybe like it was like the third inning. I was like, wow, it's it's super quiet here. <laughs> I don't remember it being this quiet. I remember it being loud pretty much the entire time. But nope, Anibal and the Nats took the w- win right out of their sails from the get-go, uh, which is pretty amazing considering how loud that stadium was from what I recall being there in person. Yeah, exactly. So not much happens in the first inning. Uh, in the second inning, the Nats start to get cooking a little bit. Uh, Howie Kendrick doubles, uh, which, you know, do- uh, so now he has a homer and a double in back-to-back at-bats in the postseason. Just two days before, he had hit a walk-off, or not walk-off, but a grand slam in the 10th inning. Uh, And then Jan Gomes doubles, so another two-out RBI for the Nationals, and they are already up 1-0. And it just felt like they were carrying all that momentum from NLDS Game 5 into this game. Yeah, yeah, and and, um, I think it's... I I think at at first, I thought they were maybe a little over-eager, um, they see, like which it to be expected. It was exciting. They were coming off the high of winning a dramatic game five against the Dodgers and flew straight to St. Louis. Um, you know, it's a little cold. Maybe you're trying. You're maybe a little over amped trying to stay warm. Um, but for them to grab an early lead, I think was very big for this team, and they just rode that momentum. Um, obviously, it helps Anibal on the mound. Uh, any run support that he can get for this team or from his teammates uh, against his helps especially against this Cardinals lineup. I mean, looking at the Cardinals lineup, I was like, how in the world did they shut them out in this game? You got Paul Goldschmidt, Paul DeJong, uh, Yadier Molina, uh, Dexter Fowler at the top of the lineup. I mean, so many big names in this lineup. No wonder this team won 92 games last year, 91 games last year. But I think it was very important for this team, for the Nationals, to grab an early lead um, and help Anibal out. That maybe helped settle him into the game for a little bit. You saw a couple in a couple – First couple of innings, Anibal's not too great with his command. Maybe trying to warm up still. Uh, there were some deep fly balls that luckily stayed in the yard, I think because of the cold night. But uh, he settled in nicely, and I think the lead helped. Yeah, bottom half of that second inning, uh, Ozuna hits a ball that almost gets out and uh, is caught, I believe, at the warning track. And they get the ball back to Anibal, and he kisses the baseball. Yeah. Um, because he And that was pretty much, though, the closest that uh, – you know, somebody would come to uh, to going deep on him all game. Uh, Matt Carpenter almost bunted for a hit in that bottom of the second, but it's another one, two, three inning for uh, Sanchez in the bottom half of that second. Top half of the third, one, two, three. Anthony Rendon almost goes yard. Again, the ball just not flying. I know it was a cold night, but we talked a, a big storyline about coming into this postseason. Uh, the rewatches, at least, was the idea that maybe the balls were a little bit dejuiced potentially for the postseason. Um, and it just felt like there were a million balls caught at the warning track. All right, bottom yeah. half of the third, Paul DeYoung strikes out on three pitches, and now we start to see uh, Sanchez lock in. Uh, it looked like DeYoung was asleep. They, they, it, it, you kind of get the idea watching them now in their at-bats that they don't have a clear plan for attacking Sanchez. Um, they, are, they took the first pitch for a strike. It felt like five at-bats in a row. Um, they just were, you know, Sanchez, after that second inning, was really settling in. He was getting that first pitch strike, and the Cardinals were just taking it. I mean, they, we talked about, uh, you know, um, against the, the Brewers, against Max, how 
the Brewers had a clear hit coming, uh, clear plan coming in that they were going to swing in the first or second pitch as soon as they saw a strike. They were going to go after it. The Dodgers did that against Strasburg in Game 5 of the NLDS. The Cardinals, for whatever reason, just did not seem to have a, a plan in place for attacking Anibal Sanchez. Yeah, no, they did. And like I, th- I think it helps that, like I said, he kind of found his groove a little bit. And he felt more comfortable being a little more aggressive. Um, and they mentioned this throughout the broadcast, especially I think in the later innings as we get deeper into this no-hit bid. But with Anibal's pitch arsenal, and, and they also touched on how he is basically reinvented, he reinvented himself as a pitcher the year before with the Braves. I mean, he's got six pitches to work with. And, and as a hitter, you have no idea what he's going to – especially when he's locked in, you have no idea what he's going to attack you with. I mean, you're expecting a fastball that – is, I mean, it's, it's crazy the range he had, too. I mean, he I think they showed a graphic later in the game. He's pitching between 80 and 92 miles per hour, all with basically the same pitch. It's a fastball or, or a changeup, maybe slide, throw in a curveball here and there. But, uh, yeah, he as he is getting more comfortable, he's able to get more aggressive, and that, in turn, uh, threw the Cardinals hitters off a lot. And then they were just guessing from that point. And, again, like I said, that's impressive to do against this lineup. You have Paul Goldschmidt, who's one of the best hitters of all of baseball, uh, Dexter Fowler, traditionally one of the best leadoff men in all of baseball, and Yadier Molina is a future Hall of Famer, uh, and he just has them up there looking silly and just guessing and, and whiffing. And not just the fact that he had that huge range, he hit, I feel like, every a, a different number on the speed gun every single time he pitched. He hit, you know, it yeah. wasn't just he could get high and low. He hit every number in between. It was weird. Um, he was just keeping hitters off balance with literally everything. Um, Going in and out of the zone too, yeah. uh, inside outside of, of the plate. I mean, it's just it was it was a guessing game, and, and he was winning every single yeah. time. All right, top of the fourth. Here is where I think I started to notice that the legend of Juan Soto was starting to take off because Juan Soto um, gets a, a, he a, I think it was a bun attempt and it goes foul, and he takes forever to get back into the box. Just takes his sweet time going to get his bat, getting back in the box to the point where the Cardinals fans were starting to boo because they're saying, all right, let's get this thing going. And I think that was kind of the moment where it started, Juan Soto's antics at the plate really started to ramp up. I think that's the first time you kind of noticed it. Obviously, he had still done a little bit of a shuffle against the Dodgers, but I remember this kind of being the series and this maybe being the moment where you start to say, where he started to grab the attention of people who were just watching at home saying, what is he doing at the plate right now? Well, it was that and also coupled with the fact that he put a bunt down that ended up going foul, that rolled foul, and he took his sweet time walking back to the plate after getting down to first base. I very vividly remember, I think I was sitting outside for that, I vividly remember people, the crowd booing him because he yeah. kind of lingered and walked back to home plate. And I don't know if that ends up throwing Miles Mikolas off at all at, uh, at this point, but the crowd didn't care for it. I think this was an adding on to the antics that he has already been known to do at the plate with the Soto shuffle and whatnot and, and the flair that he brings to the game. Uh, I think that was – I think at first I was surprised that they were booing him, but then I kind of got it. And, you know, like you said, it, I think it was kind of all in good fun, you know, like – I, if I was a home crowd, I wouldn't want to say that too. I was like, come on, get to the plate. Let's let's yeah. let's keep playing. But, you know, as a guy, if Soto's on my team, I'm like, 
you know, I, you know, there's no clock. He doesn't have to run back no. to the play. He can take his time. So uh, I think that was kind of playful. But you're right. It kind of adds to the legend of Juan Soto and, you know, how he kind of approaches the game and likes to have fun and, and kind of toy with his opposing pitchers. Yeah. And weird also, though, that he did try to bunt for a hit, considering he's, what, the, the cleanup hitter in the Nats lineup, and he's responsible for doing some damage. I know nobody was on, but uh, he tries bunting. Michael A. Taylor tries bunting. Um, it just felt like they kind of had an idea that nobody was going to be able to get many hits in that game, um, which would have been a much bigger deal if, if you know, the, the Cardinals had been able to get anything off of Sanchez. But um, it just felt like maybe a little bit after that first inning, the, the exhaustion kind of took hold, and they just kind of, not were lazy at all, but just kind of were a little bit tired and were not ready for kind of long at-bats and, didn't uh, you know? They just kind of started trying to put down bunts um, as opposed to to working deep counts to um, trying to start something a little bit more organically. I think. Yeah, I remember you talked about a couple. Was it game four? Whatever game it was in the Dodgers series, you said it. I don't know. It seems like the Nationals are bunting way more than they did yeah. in the regular season. Um, and here we are again. And like, I, I don't know. I agree with you. I don't know what the plan was there. What the idea was. But it was interesting seeing the bunt, and this is not the first time that we're going to see Juan Soto bunt in this game. He does it again later in the game in a huge spot, and the camera immediately shows Davey Martinez, and he's shaking his head. He's like, what are you doing? We need you to swing, man. Um, So it was – I didn't know – I don't – and I don't recall it ever being a topic in time. Like I don't know if that question was ever asked in any press conferences or meetings with the managers or players – but yeah, it was interesting to go back and seeing how many times they added. They did try to bunt. Maybe it was just a, a ploy to get on base and then get the big bats over. But like, you don't have Juan Soto bunt in any situation in my mind, especially yeah. in the playoffs. No, exactly. It was it was weird. It was very strange. And also, um, you know, something that totally gets forgotten. Juan Soto did not have a first good first two games of this NLCS. Um, he had an uh, you know a great finish to the to the NLDS. And obviously an amazing World Series, but um, he struggled a little bit in the first two games, at least, of this um, NLCS. All right, bottom half of the fourth. Colton Wong walks on five pitches. So now the the Cardinals have their first base runner of the night, and then he proceeds to steal, gets an awesome jump, and takes second base. Um, and I think that's when you, uh, you notice really the only time in the game that the Sanchez-Gomes tandem, um, you know, they're not used to, to um, working together. And if the Cardinals had gotten more base runners on, I think that might have been a problem because um, it Wong did get a great jump, but the Cardinals had opportunities because they, you know, Sanchez to the plate and Gomes to second base was not a very quick transaction. Right. And, and that's to be expected. We talked about how Sanchez doesn't throw heat anymore. He varies in, in, in his velocity to the plate. But I thought it was funny that earlier in the broadcast, the team mentioned that, Gomes is in there, but Kurt Suzuki usually catches on ball, but obviously he got hit in the face in game five. Gomes is in there, but he, you know, he's a step up than Suzuki in terms of throwing. So his arm's a little better. So that's somewhere where the Nationals probably feel more comfortable in there. And then here we are, the first chance he gets, he throws an error uh, at, to a, um, a would-be base dealer who then ends up at third base. And yeah. Along. So um, yeah, that, I thought that was kind of interesting too. But yeah, it's a huge break for the Cardinals. Um, one of the uh, a mistake you would have liked to see, obviously a better throw from Gomes, but someone stopped the ball from rolling into the outfield. You 
give guys bases. And just like we said, you know, you don't want to see your your superstars bunting. You also don't want to give the opposing team extra bases. And and in a situation like that, that's that's brutal. And that's something where I'm not saying that um, Ball is this type of pitcher, but you don't want to put your pitcher in that situation while giving the extra bases. And that put Ball in a tough spot. But, you know, it, it was his night, and he was able to get out of it. Yeah. All right, top half of the fifth. Um, the Nats threatened. They're not able to get any, across any runs. Uh, Mike Maddox comes out of the, the Cardinals uh, um, <laughs> dugout to consult with uh, Miles Mikolas. Uh, I totally forgot Mike Maddox was the Cardinals pitching coach at this point. Um, but I also saw a stat when uh, Anthony Rendon came up to the plate that they mentioned on the broadcast that in his last 14 plate appearances for Rendon, he swung and missed only once. One time. Yeah. How is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> that is unbelievable. I mean, the, just this, this whole postseason rewatch thing has made me appreciate just how good he was. Because I remember thinking at times, like, he's not doing enough during that postseason. Not many times, but there were a couple times where I thought that. He was unbelievable. I, I truly did not appreciate it in the moment, I think. But Anthony Rendon was unbelievable in this postseason. The patience he displayed throughout that postseason, and I think that's kind of the reason why you and I, maybe others too, thought he wasn't doing enough. Is because you know yeah. you, you think of the postseason, it's like all right, you need to be aggressive at the play, try to put the ball in play, try to hit home runs. But he's so patient; it seems like he's not doing enough. When in fact, he is almost carrying the team. I mean, it's he's not driving in like the it's like almost like the numbers aren't there, but he's doing yeah. everything right. Like rewatching and paying attention to detail to his at bats, and obviously his fielding, we know how, what he can do in the field. But his at bats, like that was a, whether no matter how it turns out, it's like that's a really good at bat. He never puts an at bat out there, a bad at bat out there, I should say. So that's the way he contributes to the team is by giving you quality at bats. Whether it turns into him scoring runs or getting on base or getting out, it's still an at-bat you would yeah. take from your superstar every single time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those... He's that type of player where he has amazing stats, but his impact goes way beyond um, what he puts up in the score in the stat sheet, you know, because you just... You see... It, you For those who have gotten the chance to watch him play, Nats fans who have gotten the chance to watch him play his entire career, his impact is way more than just what shows up in the box score um, and his attention to detail yeah. in terms of, and his knowledge of the strike zone. I mean, we talked about Juan Soto, how his knowledge of the strike zone is beyond what it should be for a person, his age, but Anthony Rendon's is beyond what it should be for any person ever. I mean, yeah. every ball, I mean, if he doesn't swing at it, he's probably right in that it was a ball. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and, exactly. And that's, and that stat you just read is a perfect example of his knowledge of the strike zone. He doesn't swing and miss very often. Yeah. It's either going to make contact or it's going to be a ball out of the zone. Yeah, it, it, it is funny when an ump calls a strike on him that is not a strike. And you can see on the K zone on TV that it's not a strike. And Anthony Rendon reacts with a little... Because he, it's like he has a photographic knowledge of the strike zone. Yeah. It, it is unbelievable. All right, sixth inning, uh, because the bottom of the fifth was another one, two, three inning. Um that's threatened again. Uh, they walk Gomes to get to Sanchez. Um, by the way, how many different pronunciations of Anibal Sanchez have we heard over the past year, and even in those playoffs? About 40. I mean, I, well, I, I've used three different ones on this podcast already. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm trying to stick with the using the accents and Anibal Sanchez. Yeah. But 
uh, listening to the broadcast last night, it was actually driving me a little crazy. I was like, I'm actually glad I didn't listen to this broadcast as yeah. it was happening because all three of those, and they're all great broadcasters themselves, nothing against them, but they all said his name differently. Yeah. And I was like, can we get on some form of like, yes, like, <laughs> like just all say the same. Let's thing. have a standard. Yeah. yeah. Let's figure out what it is or pick one and everyone yeah. say it that way. Yeah. It was, it was a little, drive me a little crazy. Yeah, it was getting in my head because I said Sanchez to start the game, which is what the play-by-play guy said was Sanchez, which I had really never heard during the season. Um, yeah, the, the accents, I think it, I, what, from what we have heard, it is Anibal Sanchez, correct? That's what I say, Anibal yeah. Sanchez. Um, it's the E, and yeah. then I say Sanchez, a hard A. Which is funny, though, because I remember when he was in Detroit, it was just, Anibal or Anibal. Anibal. Or, yeah, yeah, Anibal Sanchez. Anibal. Yeah, we've heard so many different pronunciations. Anyway, um, so the Nats threaten again in that top half of the sixth. Um, they chase Michaelis from the game. Um, he They ended up with seven hits off Michaelis in six innings, which is um, kind of uh, is impressive, but also they were not able to push across more runs, um, which was frustrating at this point in the game because it's still one nothing. Uh, bottom half of the sixth inning, uh, Sanchez strikes out, or it, it, big full count strikeout of Paul DeYoung. Uh, totally fooled him. And then now you're starting to think in this bottom half of the sixth, like you do with all no hitters, now it's starting to creep in the back of your head that, yep, look at that scoreboard. He has a walk already, but beyond that, nothing. Um, and I also noted he really did not have many strikeouts in this game, obviously. Uh, he finished the game with seven strikeouts, which uh, or five strikeouts, rather. Five, and, yeah. yeah, and the next day, you know, Max Scherzer would have 11 Ks in uh, seven innings uh, in his no-hit bid. But how many, how many no-hit bids in today's game with the explosion of the strikeout do you see with just five strikeouts? You know, it, it, it's, I feel like it, kind of an anomaly at, in today's game. Yeah, and it's in some ways almost more impressive, uh, I, I, don't, I, I guess, because it's like you're getting guys out like I don't, you're, I mean, you're inducing I don't know. soft contact. Yeah, and and you know that might even be a little more antagonizing or frustrating for an opposing team and hitter, in that I am so close to hitting this ball, but I can't seem to get it to land anywhere. Yeah, I see the ball fine, but it's just as I can't make any contact off it. That would drive me crazy. Whereas if I'm just getting blown away, it's like all right, I'm no one's touching this guy today. Like, yeah. that's I can live with that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Like. Five strikeouts is not a lot. Uh, it's again, it's just his absolute control of all five, six, whatever, how many pitches he was employing that night. Yeah. Um, and, and just being able to, and then also, you know what? I got to give credit too to the broadcast for bringing this to light. And uh, we heard Ani Ball after the game as well. But give Jan Gomes a lot of credit for calling the game too. Uh, they were yeah. on page, and we mentioned that they, you know they didn't usually work together throughout the season. Kurt Suzuki usually caught Sanchez. Uh, from their days in Atlanta together. Uh, but the fact that they were able to, you know, on short preparation day, they had one day to prepare, and they were in sync. And Gomes called a fantastic game for Sanchez, knew what he did best, knew what the hitters wanted to do, and how to counteract that. Uh, and they were just on the same page yeah. um, all night, which was impressive. All right, seventh inning. I totally forgot that Andrew Miller would pitch for the Cardinals until he came out of the bullpen. Um Adam Eaton, so now the Nats uh, try to put up some more runs now into the bullpen here. Adam Eaton, he has a triple, uh, gets to third, obviously. Uh, they intentionally walk Rendon um, yep. at, at this point. 
Um, then the uh, Andrew Miller uh, almost strikes out Soto and gets fired up about it, but doesn't, and then does strike out Juan Soto. Um, and then Howie, uh, so two outs. Now, Nationals have a runner at third in Adam Eaton. Howie Kendrick comes up clutch again. Clutch RBI single with two outs. Um, and so the Nats take a 2 nothing lead now in the top half of the seventh. Uh, and the way that Sanchez is pitching, it is not looking good for the Cardinals. Right, yeah, and uh, I don't want to breeze over Eaton's triple, too, because that was a huge hit in that game. Yeah. Um, I, I think people always think about the, the uh, you know, obviously the no-hit bid by Sanchez, and it was only 2 nothing. but the how the Nationals got to 2 was pretty impressive. I mean... Bush Stadium is known as a pitcher-friendly ballpark. It's it's pretty big. So when a guy like Adam Eaton hits the ball deep into the gap like that, and, and he flew out of that batter's box. He just was full go from the start. He even kind of stumbled a little bit on his way to third. And I thought he was going to fall in the, one of the replays too. But he kind of uses that stumble into his dive head first into, into third base and gets in there big. That puts obviously him in perfect scoring position. And Kendrick with just a nice easy swing. We're starting to see Harry Kendrick kind of take that momentum too uh, from game five in his grand slam um, and put together a really solid game in this game. And and obviously he goes on to be the NLCS MVP. Yeah. Another quick note before we move on, you know, no hit bids. You mentioned it's very rare to see no hit bids only have five strikeouts by the pitcher. It's also very rare to see no hit bids games last very long. All right. So we're at the top of the seventh. It's been two hours of keeping track. It's been two hours. This game ends up to be three hour, three and a half hours long, and we're in the seventh already at two hours. Mike Schlitt used so many pitchers in this game, and there were so many little timeouts and mound visits. I get it. It's a playoff game. It's technically close, one nothing, two nothing, but oh my god, did these last three innings drag on? And I, it was agonizing the other night rewatching it. It was probably even more agonizing yeah. for Nats fans watching in real time with a small lead and you're just trying to count down the outs to a victory, but it just drags on and on this game. I forgot how long it lasts. It took forever. Yeah. And Sanchez, you know, the, the more pitching changes that happen, the longer Sanchez has between times he's out on the mound, which during a no hit bid, you want to keep him out of the mound and breezing through pretty much. Um, also, uh, Zimmerman walked at that, this point. So there are runners on first and second with two outs and uh, Michael A. Taylor flies out. I, if, he, if Michael A. Taylor had gotten on base there, do you think Davey would have thought about pulling Anibal Sanchez with the bases loaded and two outs, only up 2 nothing, and a chance to do more damage? Well, if Michael A. Taylor gets on base there, they score, so it won't be 2 nothing, right? Were the bases... Uh, I think, it, I think uh, it was first and second, correct? I think... I have a note that says Zimmerman works a pitch walk, uh, but gets the call and loads the bases. Oh, and then look, there's okay. a mound meeting. So let me. I have a box score here. I can double check. What was the top of the seventh? Yeah. If even if so, say say Michael A. Taylor walks or gets a single and drives in one run. Yeah, left three on base. So if Michael A. Taylor gets on, so that I think that's a yeah. pr- pretty crucial part of your question because if Michael Taylor gets on base, that means the Nationals, other than a walk, they're scoring multiple runs. Yeah. So that increases their lead to four. And I think you absolutely leave Anibal Sanchez in because he has right. a bigger cushion now and and he's cruising. But if it's only one run and it's three nothing, 
Or, you know, in a situation where he gets on base and they didn't score, like the bases were loaded. That's a tough question. That's a tough decision that Davey Martinez has to make uh, because you have an opportunity there to expand the lead with, you know, a, a pinch hitter, whoever you have off, available off the bench. I mean, you've got, I think, Howie Kendrick started at second, so you've got a Dozier, you've got a Matt Adams, um, you got a Drubal Cabrera. Yeah. You have plenty of options off the bench um, to come and try to drive in more runs. That's a tough question, but it, it didn't end up being that, that, that the case. And I thought Michael, Michael Taylor ends up flying out. And I remember live thinking that ball was gone. And just postseason, Michael A. Taylor showing up again and hitting yeah. another grand slam. And I was like, oh, um, no, it's too cold. It's going <laughs> to <gonna, gonna> drop. <laughs> yeah, would be until game two when he would uh, hit his only uh, yep. postseason home run. But again, postseason, Michael A. Taylor. All right, one, two, three inning again in the bottom of the seventh. We are one inning closer to a potential no-hitter for Anibal Sanchez. One, two, three, top half of the eighth. Uh, bottom half of the eighth is when it starts to get interesting. You start thinking, how long is Sanchez going to last, and how long is Davey going to let Sanchez go if his pitch count really starts to get up there? Um, I, by the way, I, I've mentioned this, I think, before, but the, the, there have only been two postseason no-hitters in the history of the game. Um, I was at the last one, the most recent one, Roy Halladay's postseason no-hitter, um, it's it's it was in Philadelphia and it was obviously much more exciting. But I mean that it is an unbelievably difficult feat. Um, and obviously, I mean the fact that there have only been two in the history of the game. Um, it, the fact that Sanchez was flirting with it, I, I don't think it can be stressed how uh, incredible of a, a performance um, Sanchez had in that game. Um, but yeah. Anyway, so so Zimmerman snares a, a line drive in that first to get the first out of that top of the eighth, and you start in every no hitter. You think that there's you know there's always one play. There's one play, at least one, um, that just usually late in the game, but it's a play that a defender makes that would usually go for would you, you, if he doesn't make it, that's a hit. It's not going to be an error, um, and it's an incredible play that saves the no hitter, and you think that's the play, and now it really starts to get in your mind, uh, but then immediately the no-hitter is over, um, and the, uh, who was it that got that first hit, Bobby? I think that was a pinch hit by Jose Martinez. That's correct. Okay. He actually falls behind 1-2, and I think he, he gets close to striking out, but then he's able to get a base hit uh, to break it up. Gotcha. So then, yeah, so he gets a, a base hit to break it up, um, and then all of a sudden, though, it's like, wow, awesome performance. It's a shame the no-hitter is over. But now the tying run is at the plate in the bottom half yeah. of the eighth inning. Uh, and the game can really sw- uh, swing either way from here. Um, and they pull Sanchez and let Dew take over with two outs in the eighth inning. Yeah, and it's not only just a um, – it's not just the tying runs at home plate. It's Dexter Fowler, like you said. It's yeah. a good hitter, um, switch hitter. And this is where I think it kind of played into Davey Martinez's – hands a little easier uh, because the no-hitter is over. You don't have to worry about it. Now he's a tying run. And I mentioned on the broadcast, you want Dexter Fowler to hit right-handed. Uh, I think he hits significantly less uh, as a right-handed hitter. I think it's only 214 that season as a right-handed hitter. So you want to bring Doolittle in to switch him to the right side of the plate. No Hudson, but Doolittle has made a four-out save before. I think they even said that he did a four-out save against the Cardinals back at Nats Park early on in that regular season. So something he's familiar with. Um, and 
uh, yeah, I think that with a no-hitter being over and Dexter Fowler coming to play, that made David Martinez's decision a little easier, uh, especially since they didn't couldn't add on any runs at the top of the inning. Um, and, and another note about the no-hitter being broken up, the Jose Martinez thing, you, you mentioned that every no-hitter has, you know, incredible plays that preserve it, like the Zimmerman diving stop. You could tell in that bloop from Jose Martinez that Michael A. Taylor really wanted to try to go for it. Yes. Uh, yeah. You can see on his face that he's like, oh, I can almost get it, but I'm not going to be able to do it. And he plays it safe, lets it fall. Uh, you know, probably smarter for him just to let it fall, break up the no-hitter, than give uh, Jose Martinez extra bases than needed. So that was kind of interesting yeah. little nugget that I didn't re- remember from watching live. Uh, but yeah, so it goes into Doolittle. Doolittle comes in, gets the out, um, and we're on to the ninth. Yeah, and uh, I have top half of the ninth was another long inning in which really nothing happened. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's still too. I feel like that happened. Like the yeah. last three innings for the top half, like a lot of long innings with nothing happening. Yeah, nothing. Um, all right, bottom half of the ninth. Doolittle stays in there. Um, he's facing Wong, and he uh, just throws out. Colton Wong running to first to get that first out. By the way, I didn't realize, um, you know, you don't watch too many games of other teams throughout the season. I didn't realize how good of a player Colton Wong is um, until this series. I mean, not just a, um, you know, above average hitter, but an outstanding defender, very fast. Um, I was just super impressed with him. He felt like the the only uh, Cardinals position player, really, that had a a good series. but I was just impressed with him. Anyway, so they throw him out for the first out. Go ahead, Bobby. No, I was going to say I agree because I think when you think of the Cardinals, you think of Molina, you think of Goldschmidt, yeah. Fowler, Marcelo Zuna, uh, Paul DeJong, even before you think of, of Colton Wong. And you're right. I think Colton Wong is, is a great tool for that for that ball club. He's so fast. If he, and, and they stand at the top of this inning. You know, he really needs to get, if he gets on base, the Cardinals have a real good shot here to tie things up or make this interesting. And he was that close to getting on. Uh, and they mentioned, you know, it just so happened he bunted it right back to Doolittle. If that goes left or right, either way, he's on base. And it's, and we're having a whole – we might be having a different conversation about game one. Yeah. And then Paul Goldschmidt hits a long fly ball that is caught. And now they have two outs. And uh, Doolittle closes the door. I mean, four, four out save for Sean Doolittle. Everything – just lined up absolutely perfectly for the Nats not needing Hudson. I mean, they they got an an absolute jam out of Sanchez. Obviously, took them into the uh, eighth inning, and then Doolittle closing the door. It was just absolutely perfect. Um, that that whole f- you know everything from a pitching standpoint in that first game um, for the Nationals was absolutely perfect. You could not have asked for anything else. Yeah, it worked out per- like we said at the top of the show. It worked out perfectly for them, especially with the absence of Hudson. All you need is Sanchez and Doolittle, and you're out with a victory. Uh, yeah. It's a close game. It was a nail-biter. But like we said, Doolittle is comfortable with a four-out save. Um, it worked well against this Cardinals lineup and the situation where the lineup fell in in terms of having Dexter Fowler having to hit right-handed. Um, and yeah, just, just a quick note about all that the, the Cardinals hitters – this kind of reminds me that Ozuna's kind of the one to keep an eye on. I mean, no one really has a good series for this Cardinals team. Uh, but Ozuna, they talked about at the top of the broadcast for this game. He probably would have been, if there were an MVP for the division series, Ozuna might have been the MVP for the Cardinals in their win over the Braves. 
Uh, he hit two home runs and five RBIs in the NLDS. He goes on to get just three hits and strike out eight times in the NLCS. So he really falls off in this series. And game one is one of the first showings. He came up into some crucial spots too uh, and not, was not able to produce runs. So kind of like how I talked about in the NLDS with the Dodgers, how Cody Bellinger was a kind of a big name that really didn't do anything for the Dodgers. Marcelo Zuna is a big name for the Cardinals that ends up not really having a really good division series and they completely falling off the face of the earth in the championship series and not being able to produce and really hurting this Cardinals lineup. And literally, you mentioned it, Bobby, but literally nobody. <laughs> a good series for yeah, the Cardinals. but that's the thing. It's like yeah. you can't blame one guy because the I think the Nationals outscore the Cardinals, what, uh, 5, 13, 20 to <laughs> 6 in this series? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no one really has to when, get off of the series. Yeah. When you when you get swept and none of those games are one run games, I don't think any of them were, right? Nope. Two nothing, three one, eight one, seven to four. Yeah. None of them were uh one run games. There's plenty of blame to go around. Um but I, I remember thinking after this game, um the Cardinals are gonna come back. You know, it, it, at at some point we will see the bats um come out for the Cardinals. Never really happened. And also the next day, Max Scherzer was taking the ball. So the, it, it was so critical that the Nationals took game one in St. Louis, handing the ball to Max in game two. Um, you know, and while I was thinking at some point that Cardinals bats are going to wake up, you had to feel great after this win, just, just shutting out the Cardinals with your fourth best pitcher on the mound. Yeah, and we talked about how it could not work more perfectly for the Nationals. I think they're in a situation where – you know, even if they go down in game one, you can feel confident knowing that you have Max in game two. And that could be, I mean, you, as the road team in a seven game series, you're just thinking of stealing one of these games, yeah. right? Like you're just trying to win one of the games on the road, get back home, hopefully two. And then you just need, then you see, we need to win one more out of three. Yeah. But the fact that they were able to steal game one, and then, like you say, you're going into game two with Max Scherzer. Yes. Uh, St. Louis is throwing Adam Wainwright on the mound against him in game two. That was a pitching matchup that most people were looking forward to, game two as opposed to game one. So game one was kind of a toss-up. Uh, and I think that it was just a great way to to set the tone for the Nationals in this in their first NLCS, winning game one on the road against a team that had haunted them in the past. You know, Don't forget 2012. Yeah. Uh, I definitely cringe when they mentioned Pete Cosma's name early on the broadcast. But I think... This was like the picture-perfect, even with Hudson out, picture-perfect start to the NLCS. You have to use two pitchers. Even with Doolittle having a four-out save, you would figure he would still be available the night before. I think he only threw 15 pitches in this outing. Um, so all in all, a great game one for, for the Nationals, and then that catapults them to game two, and with the chance to go up 2 nothing against the Cardinals in St. Louis. Yeah, exactly. An afternoon game for game two, a game that I was not in the ballpark for for the most of that part of that game. Came back for game three, but uh, it was rough yeah. game two. So your rewatch for game two will be the first time you've ever seen game yes. two, right? Yes, no, I, I rewatched it, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so that happened. I literally woke up in like with like a fever dream in my uh, hotel room right at the end of game two, and they were like, uh, Max Scherzer, another no-hit bid after Sanchez is yesterday, and I was like, okay, that that's cool. Like I, <laughs> and it just none of yep. it felt real. And then back to sleep. Yep, yep, pretty much. Yep. Got ordered some some room service soup. It's all a tragic tale. All right, the Bobby. Thanks so much for hopping on at Bobby underscore Blanco. Of course, on Twitter, I'm at Paul Mancano. Give us a like, a subscribe, a follow. 
uh, a rating, a review, all that good stuff. Uh, of course, the Mass and All Access podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. We appreciate you so much for tuning in. We hope that from wherever you're joining us, you're safe, you're healthy, you're with your family, uh, and we're going to get through this. Uh, so thanks so much for tuning in to the Mass and All Access podcast.